0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Can a Novel DMT Class Deliver Better Outcomes in MS? Considering the Potential of BTK Inhibition. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YAJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everybody. My name is Amit Baror from the University of Pennsylvania, and it's a pleasure and an honor together with my co-faculty, Professor Anthony Tribulsi, Tony Tribulsi from University of British Columbia, to share this early morning hour with you on this symposium related to BTK inhibitors. You've heard a lot about BTK inhibitors already, and here's a chance to hear more about this exciting wave of new therapies that we hope will get added to the MS treatment armamentarium, perhaps with the first phase three data emerging as early as the end of this year so the title is can a novel dmt class the btk inhibitors deliver better outcomes in multiple sclerosis so the goals for today first to understand the rationale for using btk inhibition as a potential treatment for multiple sclerosis to keep current with some of the data that's emerging from the clinical trials ongoing with BTK inhibitors, and to consider, and especially in the discussion in Q&A, what profile of patients we might consider to be the appropriate patients for BTK inhibition. My task is to introduce why we think BTK inhibition as a new approach for MS management is warranted and that we ought to be excited about. And so what I'll do over the next few minutes is overview, first of all, a little bit of an historical perspective on immune cells that have been implicated in multiple sclerosis, starting with T-cells that have been implicated as driving the disease. But now the recognition that's evolved that this is not about a single cell type, but about interactions between different cells. We'll talk about B-cells, T-cells, and myeloid cells, the latter including peripheral myeloid cells like macrophage, but also CNS or central nervous system compartmentalized myeloid cells such as microglia, as well as astrocytes in the brain that play very interesting immune-related roles. And these cellular interactions occur through a variety of molecules, including cytokines and a variety of receptors. We will distinguish the roles of these different cells and elements in the context of, on one hand, relapsing disease biology, which we think of as being driven by immune cell interactions in the periphery that traffic to the CNS, versus those that are compartmentalized within the central nervous system and those inflammatory responses and degenerative mechanisms we consider to be relevant to the non-relapsing progressive aspects of the disease. And at the end, again in the context of BTK inhibition, we'll discuss the potential therapeutics. So this has been our sense that over the timeline over time course or age of individuals, they start from left to right with the development of focal inflammatory lesions, and that these can be captured quite readily by MRI, new gadolinium-enhancing lesions, newer enlarging T2 lesions, and they reflect the perivascular consequences of inflammation and injury of relapse biology, waves of inflammation from the outside in. But we also believe now that there is inflammation that is set up within the central nervous system. This includes both immune cells that have trafficked and set up shop and now live there over a lengthy period of time, maybe decades, if not the life of the individual as well as responses of brain cells that have inflammatory features and together contribute to this concept of CNS compartmentalized inflammation. Until relatively recently, it has not been that easy to image them because much of this pathology was recognized underneath the meninges, where there's inflammation in the meninges, and this subpial cortical lesion is not as easy to measure on typical 1.5 or 3T3 Tesla MRIs. Also, a similar pathology in the deep gray, both of which seem to have a surface-in gradient of injury with demyelination, neuronal loss, and microglial activation. And then, in the last few years, the realization that a subset of those focal inflammatory lesions that start as part of relapse biology have a second life. And that second life... The pathologists have told us over many years that there can be lesions with a chronic active feature. So there's some inflammation, especially at the rim of these lesions, whereas it's less inflammatory, if not entirely inactive in the center of the lesion. And these active, inactive, or chronic active lesions both terms have been used interchangeably, we can capture at least a subset of them with two imaging measures. One is called the slowly evolving or expanding lesion, the SEL, and the other one is the paramagnetic rim lesion, which is based on the presence at the rim of the lesion of what we think of as activated microglia that have iron in them, and that provides the MRI contrast on susceptibility-type sequencing as a rim lesion that can be identified, counted, and assessed over time. So for the first time, we have metrics that we can follow, certainly in the context now of essentially all evolving clinical trials and that we hope one day will be translated into the clinic. Inflammation, as a main takeaway message, is something that we shouldn't consider as involving just relapse biology with degeneration representing progressive disease. Rather, inflammation is present, although in different compartments and with different flavors throughout the process of MS, both in relapsing and progressive biology. And ideally, a treatment, either a single treatment or in combination, would tackle both aspects of inflammation, both in the periphery and in the CNS. And this is a simplified cartoon representing the CNS in the lower right. In the upper left is going to be the immune system. We think now of activation of immune cells. They're trafficking across the barrier into the central nervous system and their participation both in the perivascular inflammation and the CNS compartmentalized inflammation. And as I had mentioned, historically, the focus had been on T helper cells, known also as CD4 T cells. But it really is about interactions between these different types of cells that underlie what we consider to be the relapse biology and, again, the immune-immune interactions but also immune-brain interactions in the CNS that contribute to the non-relapsing progressive disease. And these are the two biologies that we're hoping to target with BTK inhibition. So we'll expand a little bit on the periphery first. And at the core of this is the capacity of an immune system to recognize and respond potentially with injury to the central nervous system. It turns out we all have the capacity to do that. It's actually part of our normal immune repertoire. This normal autoimmunity, we all have it, is there for very important reasons, probably from early development. The immune system is now recognized to play key roles in normal tissue development, including, as it turns out, brain development. But normally, people have this autoimmunity without it spilling over into injury of self, And that's the difference between normal autoimmunity and autoimmune disease. And maintaining that balance is the balance between effectors and regulators of different immune cell types, including... What has been studied most over the years is the balance between pro-inflammatory T cells and regulatory T cells. You've all heard of B effectors, T effectors, and T regulatory cells. This is true on the myeloid cell side, and T cells don't work alone. They interact with antigen-presenting cells. The myeloid cells include, again, in the periphery, things like macrophage and dendritic cells, and in the CNS, the resident microglia. And there's bidirectional interaction in that they can shape each other's responses. And while historically the traditional view had been that B cells are just waiting around passively to get help from T cells to make antibodies, and we certainly have known that antibodies are abnormally implicated in MS for over a century, that we now recognize, and I'm cutting through a lot of data over the last few years, that has taught us that B cells also come in different functional response profiles, They can be effectors, be effectors, they can be regulators, be regulators, and partly they do this again through cytokines that they can elaborate and that they can regulate autoimmunity and they can talk back to both T cells and myeloid cells So there are bidirectional interactions between all these cell types, and you could imagine that an imbalance for one or more reasons and potentially different reasons across individuals can result in a spillover into CNS-directed autoimmunity. And the same principle holds in the world of autoimmunity for a variety of other different target organ-directed immune pathologies. So therapeutically, we can break this cascade very effectively with respect to at least relapse biology by depleting the B cells selectively with anti-CD20, which does also deplete some small populations of T cells, as it turns out. We can also consider targeting the B cells and the myeloid cells selectively with a BTK inhibitor because those are the two cells that are the main targets of BTK inhibition. BTK itself is a molecule involved in many aspects of immune responses. B cells are part of the adaptive immune system, myeloid cells are part of the innate immune system. As far as B cells are concerned, you see that little cartoon. The B cell receptor is popping out on the upper left of that figure, and BTK, somewhere buried in the center, is a molecule downstream of the B cell receptor. When the B cell sees its antigen through the receptor, It triggers a signaling pathway that needs to go through btk and btk function when it is triggered is involved in maturation of b cells their proliferation their ability to produce various cytokines and antibodies on the myeloid cell side btk is present downstream of a different receptor that's the fc gamma receptor and that is a receptor that binds tails of antibodies so when b cells and plasma cells secrete antibodies they will bind to their antigens that immune complex will float around And the tail of the antibody, which is called the FC tail of the antibody, will stick into an FC receptor, for instance, of a myeloid cell, which then gobbles up the antibody and the antigen. And that's one of the ways of the normal immune system clearing different pathogens that are bound by the antibody response. So a very important interaction between the adaptive and the innate immune systems. And you can break that cascade if you limit the ability of BTK to deliver these signals and activate pro-inflammatory myeloid cell responses. So the BTK inhibition here is essentially able to limit all these different responses, particularly of the B cells and myeloid cells of the immune system. And in the periphery, we talk about the roles in relapsing biology, and the CNS we think of again as the non-relapsing progressive biology. Now, what might be potential advantages of BTK inhibitors in MS treatment? And I think uh, this is sort of a summary slide that really recaps what you've heard before, which we do have evidence of the role of peripheral B cells and myeloid cells in relapse biology. We have growing evidence of CNS compartmentalized inflammation, particularly the presence of these B cell rich collections of immune cells in the meninges. And in the context of myeloid cells, the microglia, which are both present in activated form as part of the subpeal or thalamic surface in injury, but also this microglia rim of activation in the context of these chronic active or active inactive lesions, all of which we think of as substrates of non-relapsing progressive disease. So there's evidence supporting the role of both B cells and myeloid cells in the CNS and in the periphery and that BTK are able to regulate responses, again, of both these cell types. This is the logic that's being used not just in MS, but in other autoimmune diseases. And unlike most therapies in MS, there are BTKs that are viewed as CNS penetrant, and that's really where, in my mind at least, the excitement lies, where they can cross the blood-brain barrier. They have been seen to concentrate in the CNS, or to be present in the CNS, I should say, in concentrations that one hopes would have therapeutic effects in limiting the capacity of activation of these target cell population. So hopefully a medication class that will be impacting both relapse biology and progressive biology. And with that, I will wrap up. I will pass the baton to Professor Anthony Tribulsi from the University of British Columbia to examine the evidence of what do BTK inhibitors tell us so far in clinical trials. Tony, please.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. So it's great, you know, pleasure and honor to be here to participate in this. It's been a steep learning curve for all of us to yet learn about a new mechanism of action of a potential medication for both relapsing and hopefully progressive MS. And it's not a brand new molecules. They're new molecules in terms of their development, but this class of drug has been around for a while in the hematology world for lymphoma and other hematological cancers. And so There's been a lot of drug development already and knowledge around how these drugs work and their safety that we can leverage off in the multiple sclerosis world. And as you can see, there's several competing candidates for the MS market of drugs in different stages of development with evobrutinib and tolibrutinib being the closest to completing phase three trials. So why so many different BTK inhibitors? What's been going on in that field in terms of development? A lot of it's really been trying to either make the molecules in hematology more effective or to decrease side effects and off-target effects. And so that's why we see a whole range of different BTK inhibitors is just trying to make the molecules better. And so again, we leveraged off of the hematology world, so we're going to see in general better tolerated medications than what the hematologists have experienced with their patients. And so, yeah, so it's really exciting to see such development. I remember when I was approached to participate in the phase two trials, we had, were at the stage then where we had a lot of over a dozen medications for relapsing multiple sclerosis, several pills, several very convenient therapies that were twice a year or induction type therapies that were highly effective. And I really wondered, you know, would I be able to recruit for studies like this going on to a daily pill? And so there had to be some kind of theoretical advantage. And as I looked at it at the time, the vantages that were hypothetical or theoretical were maybe a better tolerated medication for patients that prefer oral medication, so something that has fewer side effects like flushing or diarrhea or hair loss, maybe safer with no lymphocyte depletion and that risk of infection. So that would be you know good for the relapsing market or patients, and then. Probably the biggest consideration was the potential that we could finally get at mechanisms of progression. And many of us think of progression not just after 20 years of MS, but even occurring in the earliest stages of MS. Certainly when we look at brain volumes at the time of diagnosis, patients diagnosed with MS have smaller or more atrophic brains and their age matched controls, suggesting that the mechanisms of progression are present day one. And so a therapy that we could start early in the disease course to also impact on progression would be very attractive. So, that was my motivation for getting involved in these studies early on. I'm still waiting for all the answers, of course, but we have some compelling data from phase two, at least on its anti inflammatory impact, which I should get to. So, let's look at some of the phase two data. Now, phase two trials are really trying to find your target dose, your most effective anti inflammatory dose for your phase three trial. And so a variety of different, from you know very low subtherapeutic dose to what you think will be your target dose, is put into the trial. And the evobrutinib study is a very classic six-month design of randomized patients to either placebo or different doses of evobrutinib. And the primary outcome in these phase two clinical trials is looking for suppression of contrast or gadolinium enhancement on MRIs. So that's our biomarker for peripheral inflammation. It's predictive of having relapses in the future. And so using that in clinical trials is more efficient. We can look at fewer patients for treatment effect than relying on relapses alone, for example. Usually going into a study like this, about 40% of patients have gadolinium activity at their baseline. So it's a very sensitive marker. And so in this study, the treatment effect was looked really at a week allowing the drug to become as effective as possible, and then looking at the impact at week 12, averaging the gadolinium activity at week 12 to 24. And this is the result. So in this study, you had placebo in the three doses of evobrutinib, and also as compared to dimethylfumarate. One of the challenges when doing phase 2 studies is looking at MRI. sometimes you can get one or two patients with a ton of activity that can really skew your data, which is probably what happened with fumarate, because we know that therapy works. However, what we were really looking at is what is the best anti-inflammatory dose of evobrutinib to go into phase 3. And you can see that both the 75 milligrams once a day or 75 milligrams twice a day was effective at suppressing MRI activity at that, within that first six months of treatment. And it's the actually the 75 twice a day that has gone forward into the phase 3 trials. Relapse rates are also looked at. Again, it's a short duration study for phase two, and so you don't tend to get as many relapses. It's our phase three studies that give us the best data on relapse suppression, but phase two gives us a hint if we're going the right direction in terms of that peripheral autoimmunity, and certainly you can see it here again with the target dose of 75 twice a day, good suppression of a good low relapse rate, and maintained at week 48. And also with These phase two studies, there's ongoing observations showing that this is sustained long-term. So, so far, this first therapy, evobrutinib, is showing good peripheral anti-inflammatory effect. So competitive with the other therapies we have on the market, assuming this is reproduced in phase three, which as Dr. Barrow mentioned, we should have some readouts this year, we hope, for the phase three studies. But the more challenging aspect, and kind of one of our targets, is a biomarker for secondary progression. Or for progressive features of multiple sclerosis, and there's been a lot of different ones being explored to represent what's going on clinically. Historically, it was mostly looking at brain atrophy, for example, as a potential biomarker of progression or destructive elements of the disease. One of the ones you've heard about throughout this meeting and throughout the past year or two are phase rim lesions or slowly expanding lesions. This is going from a global level, looking down at the level of the lesion again and trying to identify something that represents the smoldering disease, these microglial cells that we think are the important players in progression. And so on the left you see that little cartoon that looks like a one type of lesion that has these microglia macrophages on the edges that are just kind of living there and slowly chomping away at the tissue adjacent to it leading to this increased size of lesion over time that can be now measured using some computer technology and to see that these things look and expand over time. And there's emerging data, which of course requires further validation that these patients with the presence of these slowly expanding lesions tend to have a worse clinical prognosis in terms of progression or disease worsening over time. And that's been evolving over the past five years in terms of validation data and clinical observations. So it seems to be a compelling potential biomarker if therapies we're developing are working on the mechanisms of progression or what we assume are the mechanisms of progression. And so this is some recent data from the Phase two trial. And again, consider it exploratory, right? A lot of this stuff needs to be confirmed in Phase three trials, showing that compared to placebo, patients on the higher dose of evobrutinib were less likely to have the same degree of increase in slowly expanding lesions. So again, suggesting we might be going in the right direction, even in the short term of 48 weeks, of maybe impacting on those mechanisms. In general, these therapies tend to be very well tolerated, and things I look at for particular interest would be infection rates. As Dr. Barrow mentioned, these drugs do not destroy cells. They do not deplete lymphocytes. They just modulate or control and prevent the overactivity of B cells. And so we're not seeing opportunistic infections, so thumbs up for that. Not seeing a lot of other off-target side effects, certainly not seeing diarrhea or any major GI issues. So very well tolerated. Probably the adverse event of interest that's been emerging is whether or not, how often are we going to see drug-induced liver injury? And that's come up as a topic and concern for the FDA, which has impacted on how the studies are being managed currently. But very rare events of increased liver enzymes so far. And I'll come back to that when I talk about the current status. Some other exploratory data with these types of drugs is looking at animal models. Now, most animal models of multiple sclerosis, are looking at the relapsing form of the disease, and it's really hard to get a good model of progressive MS, but there is some models that are similar to progressive MS. And in this one study, looking at this, for example, evobrutinib, showed that it was able to target the compartmental inflammation in the animal model better than anti-CD20 could do. So again, showing more theoretical evidence, in this case, experimental evidence, that we are getting closer to the target of mechanisms of progression. Bottom line is these drugs do not wear off in terms of efficacy. The MRI suppression and the analyzed relapse rate remains quite low, and the safety remains quite good in terms of opportunistic infections not appearing, no lymphopenia appearing, reasonably quite well tolerated as well. So let's move on to the next study, which is a tolibrutinib phase 2 trial. And that's the one I was personally involved with as an investigator. And this was needed in so many ways, a completely different novel design for phase two trials. And that was, again, one of the challenges in considering doing a study. How can we put patients on placebo for six months, right? That was really when there's so many therapeutic options. And so in this study, the novel design was patients were only on placebo for one month. And then they were randomized to the different doses of talibrutinib. And it was a very bold trying to expecting that the drug would have a therapeutic effect within 12 weeks of exposure. So rather than waiting for 12 weeks for it to build up and then doing several follow-up points to see if it worked, we had a much shorter time. So the patient exposure to being on placebo or therapy was much lower, which I think made it a very patient-friendly study. i love to go on and on about it. I just love this new design. I think we'll see more and more of this in our RMS world. And so here's the primary outcome again: impact on gad enhancing lesions. And so you've got the placebo on the left, and then the very low dose, and then the other doses. And you can see that the dose going forward, into clinical trials, into phase three studies, had a very good suppression of gad activity within a very short time frame of 12 weeks. And then we have a variety of long term data. All the patients eventually got rolled over to the 60 milligram dose during various times of being on their original dose and. Generally, it lives up to its name, of being very well-tolerated. I know in my own practice, I've only had one patient discontinue, and that's because she wanted to become pregnant. Overall, again, not seeing any infections. And yeah, and I think then long-term, we're also seeing a very low relapse rate with patients who remained on drug. We've got, I think, about, over, about 86% of patients are still on therapy after two years, which is uh, very impressive. 73% remained relapse-free, and no change in EDSS, which is encouraging. We wanted to assess patients who seem to be higher risk for disability, and those are the ones who at baseline have highly active disease. They have enhancing lesions on their baseline MRI, multiple lesions, so a bad-looking MRI, or at least two relapses in the year prior. And that's about half the patients in the cohort, and we've found exactly the same degree of benefit or efficacy in that subgroup of patients. And so for the Impact on relapsing aspects of multiple sclerosis is peripheral immunity. It's uh, very effective for a wide range of relapsing patients. So again, here we have the slowly expanding lesion data again, showing the better outcome at the high dose, the 60 milligram dose, showing less increase of the or less development of these slowly expanding lesions. And so we also looked at a thing called phase rim lesions. Phase rim lesions are less common than slowly expanding lesions. The neat thing about them, though, there's more pathological validation that they are microglia. They've actually been biopsied, and we can see microglia at the edges. And again, very rare to see any new phasorom lesions develop on this therapy. So some hints that we're going not only as a strong anti-inflammatory drugs, but also going in the direction of towards the mechanisms of progression impacting on those. There's been a large body of work looking at CSF concentrations of this drug, and I think that's going to be one of the areas. Assuming that's going to be an important for impact on microglia, the talabrutinib certainly has a high penetration into the CNS and high therapeutic, well, should be therapeutic levels in the CSF of volunteers. So to be determined how that impacts. This is a list of what's going on in terms of the current therapies. We've got evobrutinib, talabrutinib, finabrutinib and remibrutinib. So some are just in relapsing forms of the disease, but importantly, some are in progressive forms of the disease. Both evobrutinib and talabrutinib. we should see some readouts of the relapsing form within the year we anticipate, and soon thereafter, hopefully information on the progressive forms, especially the non-relapsing secondary progressive studies. So really exciting time. Most comparators are in progressive are with the placebo, which is still standard design. Interestingly, the fenobrutinib is head-to-head with ocrelizumab, which is currently the only therapy that's been approved for primary progressive MS. So that's very bold and very exciting to see if that's going to have an impact. There was some unfortunate rare events of drug-induced liver injury or elevated liver enzymes that caused the FDA some concern and put some hold particularly in the U.S. of recruitment into some of the studies. Fortunately, these are very rare events, for the most part reversible events. The studies had been, for, at least for the relapsing and secondary progressive studies, had been fully recruited, and so those studies will still have their readouts. It's mostly currently affecting U.S. recruitment in the primary progressive study. There's a third drug to a which is in phase two that's Recently, had a FDA hold as well for some, case, some signs of elevated liver enzymes. So the liver enzyme issue, we're not, that's not new to us in the MS world, but the dust will settle on that at the end of the phase 3 trials in terms of how common and how to manage it. And we'll have a manage, there, there will be a clear management strategy for minimizing the, the risk of that in our patients. So I'm just so excited about these therapies and anxious to see the phase 3 results, especially the impact on progression. And back to Amit.
0: Thank you, Tony. Thanks. Okay, so a few more comments with relation to BTK inhibitors. We have, as Tony just showed, a good number of them out going through phase three trials. So we're going to have a very busy field when it comes to these drugs, hopefully, getting through to the approval stage. And there are a number of aspects or features that are different across the different BTK inhibitors. They include a variety of properties that are more in sort of the physical chemical aspect in terms of whether they're covalently binding, non-covalently binding, whether they are reversible or irreversible, how selective they are, and particularities of their domain target as well as some other features. We don't, to date, I think, really know how important those differences are with respect to the impact on either clinical efficacy or safety. As Tony says, the phase 3 clinical trials for each individual drug Will give us a better sense with respect to the efficacy and safety and the balance. The question of comparing across trials is something that we've done, struggled with, I should say, over many years with many different families of agents, and I think time will tell. But these drugs are likely to overall be more similar than they are different as we've seen across other classes of medications. So now we're going to segue into how we might use BTK inhibition in the context of clinical practice and some of the questions among Questions that were submitted both before and during this meeting include which type of MS may be the most appropriate type of MS to consider for BTK inhibition, what stage of the disease, early in the disease, late in the disease, patients who are very active versus non-active. What about prospects of combination therapy, whether concurrent combination therapy or serial combination therapy? We talked about the liver injury, and I completely agree with Tony that this is in my mind, likely to be a class effect, but likely to be something that we, with the data emerging from the Phase three trials, will have a management plan, a risk mitigation plan, and we are used to doing that in the MS field. We hope that the tolerability and the efficacy that we will see towards the end of the Phase three programs is going to give us a sense of a favorable balance between the efficacy and safety. Pregnancy and breastfeeding is another topic that we may talk about, and then the question about rebound. So what we'll talk about just before segueing into a couple of patient anecdotes is this question of rebound. This is also something that comes up in the context of pregnancy. With respect to BTK inhibition, one aspect we know, and Tony had already mentioned, it has a pretty rapid onset of action as compared to many other medications that are out there, but it's also quite readily reversible in terms of its mechanism of action. And this is true whether you're thinking of covalent or non-covalent or reversible or reversible. The main reason is that the protein, the target, the BTK, is made by cells consistently, and so if you block and inhibit, or in other ways you may impact the target by degrading it for instance, you will get BTK re-expressed by the cell over a relatively rapid period of time. So even if it's bound covalently and irreversibly to the BTK that it engaged initially, new BTK will emerge and the function will resurrect. So we think that an advantage of this class of therapy is if we do need to stop it for any reason, including, for instance, pregnancy considerations, that the off effects ought to be relatively quick. The other has to do with a rebound effect. And here we have data, as Tony said, from the very elegant phase two trial design of talibrutinib, because by having some patients start with placebo and go on drug, but others start with drug and go on placebo, we actually have it in an organized way with very close follow-up, including imaging for subclinical disease activity, the opportunity to see what happens to individuals with MS, with relapsing MS who are on the drug and then come off the drug. And the reassuring results were that there was really no consideration, of course, in a preliminary fashion of concern around rebound disease activity. So that hopefully will indeed be another attractive property of this class of medications. Now, Tony, you had experience with the Phase two clinical trial, the tolibrutinib. I'm going to give you a couple of cases to sort of reflect on. We'll be interested in Tony's view of a couple of these cases. And the first is a 24-year-old woman. She's generally been well. She presents with a two-week history of increasing sensory abnormalities and some weakness, mostly on the left side, both the upper and lower extremity. She's got abnormal reflexes, elevated reflexes on that side, and some slowness of movement. And the MRI shows multiple lesions, typical for MS in the brain, but also in the cord. At least one of them is enhancing. There are no black holes in the spinal fluid shows the presence of oligoclonal bands. This is not a diagnostic mystery. I think we'd all agree that this person has relapsing multiple sclerosis. This is an early diagnosis. What are your thoughts on this? This was
1: actually the type of patient I had recruited into the phase two trial, they newly diagnosed enhancing lesions. So that would fit into that highly active disease group and glad to see that that group also benefited well from the therapy. The other thing about her, she had a lesion in her cervical cord, and some interesting data, long-term data from Queen Square Group, shows that having lesions in the spinal cord is a bad prognostic factor for future disability progression. And so she's, you know, someone that you'd want to be on a highly effective therapy, but that might also have that potential to prevent progression. So I think she would be a good candidate, rather than waiting for that older patient who you know is higher risk for progression than starting therapy at that point. Again, assuming we're going to be having a big impact on progression. So far, with the Phase two data, we're not seeing any change in EDSS, which is encouraging. So, yeah, and the patient I enrolled, he's stayed on therapy, which is always a challenge with a daily pill. But again, because the medication is so well-tolerated, he's not having side effects. He just has to remember to take his pill in the morning.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, thanks, Tony. And, And certainly, I mean, this illustrates a case of someone with clearly early relapsing MS And the considerations around that for BTK inhibition, I think absolutely one needs to wait for the phase three data, of course, to to get a better sense. The question I have is, while we just talked about the considerations in the context of relapsing MS, this person is early in their course, is there any potential benefit for this patient at this stage of their illness with respect to the non-relapsing progressive disease?
1: Yeah, well, I haven't had any experience with patients yet on this type of therapy who have non-relapsing secondary progressive I had a couple of patients that went into phase two that were having relapses, but clear, to me had early signs of progression. And so please, anecdotal personal experience from the phase two. Again, they were older, and they've actually done quite well. They've been stable throughout, and now it's been about two years. That's still a bit early, right? But that's just two patients and personal experience. So it makes me optimistic.
0: So and my question, in fact, was about this young patient with relapsing MS. And I think I mean, what I was alluding to is that the biology of non-relapsing progressive disease we now think starts very early in the disease course right so while we talked about the considerations with respect to this person's relapsing disease if this drug proves to be if this type of drug proves to be effective and safe one might think of it as potential benefits for both biologies which we think occur from early on The type of MRI evidence of this chronic active lesion, and particularly the other type, which is the paramagnetic rim lesion, there's now data emerging, G1O and others, as Tony knows, that relates to the radiologically isolated syndrome, those who turn out to have MS. As early as that stage of preclinical MS, there's already evidence of presence of these, what appear radiographically to be, chronic active lesions. So we do think that the biology of non-relapsing progressive disease starts very, very early. It's just subclinical most of the way until it emerges clinically. And in people who had relapsing disease, we call it secondary progressive MS. In people who didn't have evident relapsing disease, we call it primary progressive MS.
1: I guess what's partly going to address that is looking some of the work that's evolving out of progression independent of relapse activity. And some lovely work by Ludwig Kapos with the Ocrelizumab trials, showing that Surprisingly, there is a fair amount of that occurring in patients on a highly effective therapy. And so, those are a lot of those patients for early in their disease course, like Sienna. So, I think if we look at that in phase three trials, we might get a better sense of clinically impact on progressive mechanisms.
0: Right. So, I think overall, we probably have agreement that if the phase three clinical trials bear out as we hope, that this person, Sienna, would be a candidate for BTK inhibition. The second individual is a 55-year-old gentleman. He was diagnosed at the age of 28, so he's now had MS for some time. He's had relapses early on, so relapsing onset, has been on beta interferon for many years, is getting tired of injections. He's got a relatively low MR lesion burden, and there have been no new lesions seen in at least 10 years. There are relatively few black holes. However, there is some degree of brain and spinal cord volume loss, and it may be accelerating in the last few years. The disability is overall low, but he's complaining of some ongoing worsening, progressive worsening of gait, especially due to leg weakness and inability to walk distances. Tony, do you want to
1: comment? Again, I think this is really one of the hope for targets, isn't it, that the unmet need in our community is impacting on those patients that are just kind of, the disease is creeping in, and it's really going to impact on their aging well time with their lives when some of us are looking forward to. So I think hopefully these drugs will slow or even stop that element. Again, I think the sooner we intervene to stop that process at the earliest stages, is going to be more impactful. Because I'd, I'm not expecting these drugs to drive repair. Repair is really innate, and in whether or not our bodies are going to repair or not, I think will in part will depend on our general well-being and healthiness. So we have to promote that in our, all our patients, young and old, to have a healthy lifestyle. But if it could at least stop progression, it would allow natural repair mechanisms to occur. So, at least for these patients who have some significant disability stabilizing them, I think would be a benefit for their long-term outcomes.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think that uh, while we certainly are not thinking of BTK inhibitors right now in the context of the studies that are underway as repairing medications, there is some data in vitro and in animal models bar sulk from the cell portrayer for instance that identifies that btk inhibition appears to be able to support some in vivo remyelination and perhaps by supporting oligodendrocyte precursor cells and the other consideration is and this gets to the concept of maybe some form of combination therapy is that we have tried several agents that are meant to repair they have not borne out as being successful Either it's because they're not going to work even if given the best chance. The other is that they didn't work because of ongoing CNS compartmentalized inflammation that none of our other medicines have been able to target. Might it be the case that with BTK inhibition, we'll be able to downregulate that CNS compartmentalized inflammation and provide a more permissive environment for reparative agents that otherwise would not work as well. So we'll, I think, also consider this as a potential candidate. And I think the main reason for these two illustrative cases is to make the point that if we do see successful phase 3 clinical trials, one would consider BTK inhibition as an attractive prospect across a broad range of patients with relapsing and progressive forms of MS. And it's going to be very interesting to see the complement of both the relapsing and progressive trials, and particularly the non-relapsing progressive MS and primary progressive MS, as Tony had said. So we're now gonna spend just a few minutes remaining on some of the questions that have come in. We've got about five, six minutes to go. As I'd mentioned, first of all, thank you for excellent questions both before and after the event. Many of the pre-event questions I think have been addressed quite well, particularly by Tony with respect to clinical issues. Before going deeper into BTKI and MS, there was one question about what other disorders have BTK inhibitors been found effective in? So we don't yet have beyond the cancer world, and again, this is an example of borrowing from the cancer world, treatments into the world of multiple sclerosis in particular, but autoimmune diseases more generally. There are efforts in using BTK inhibition in conditions like lupus and inflammatory bowel disease. Again, fields recognizing that the potential for B cells and myeloid cells in particular to be part of what mediates those diseases and the ability to decrease that potential contribution in what hopefully will be a safe and tolerable way. And of course, the MS field stands out somewhat uniquely compared to those in that we've typically been studying monotherapies. Whereas in the world of lupus, RA, IBD, people are rarely on a single immune-directed therapy. And what that means to us at least is that, there, first of all, there are more humans exposed to this drug who don't have cancer. And that's important for us in terms of recognizing tolerability and safety signals. And one might anticipate that individuals with MS who are generally well otherwise, although they do have more comorbidities over time than the healthy population – that they may be less subject to adverse events with monotherapy as opposed to BTK inhibition added on. So I think we're learning and we've been reassured overall from the still relatively limited exposure, but some exposure nonetheless in other autoimmune disease conditions. A question here for Tony. We've talked about the Dilly incidence. What can you say about maybe a few words on treatment sequencing? Because this question came up by several participants.
1: Yeah, so I think this will be a, a good class of drugs for sequencing because they're removed from the body quite quickly. So let's say you're on a BTK inhibitor and you need to change to a different mechanism for whatever reason. You're not, there's no lymphocyte depletion, so you don't have to worry about allowing lymphocytes to come back. And the drugs are washed out pretty quickly They have a short half-life. So I think these are really going to be a good class of drugs if you need to switch from this to something else for whatever reason. And switching to this drug from another drug Again, you know, there's always that concern around going from something such as nataluzumab, JC-positive patient, and you're starting to get concerned about potential PML risk. You may want to switch to a drug that you can turn off pretty quickly as opposed to a long-acting drug when you're sequencing from that class of drug. So I think it is going to fit well in the sequencing from BTK inhibitors to something or from something to BTK inhibitors. And probably the other scenario would be, with long-term use of anti-CD20 therapy, a small percentage of patients will get immunoglobulin depletion. And that, for some, will be a risk for infections. And this might be a nice segue to maintain that B-cell management effect without having that immunoglobulin suppression. So I think there would be a lot of good sequencing opportunities.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that there's a particular attraction conceptually to the prospect of switching, and we have many patients on anti-CD20s, but from anti-CD20s, to BTK inhibition, in part because we do know already that when you allow B cells to reconstitute after people having had them depleted by anti-CD20, the B cells that come back are not biologically the same as the B cells that were there before. And as far as we can tell, their properties are less pro-inflammatory. They're not as abnormal as they were before they were depleted. And they may in fact have some anti-inflammatory properties. BTK, which again won't deplete the B cells, shapes their responses. And you might imagine that if you allow reconstitution of B-cells with BTK inhibition on board, might that actually further shift the repopulating B-cells into a less pro-inflammatory, maybe more anti-inflammatory profile? This is a testable question, and I think we're we're eager to see what will emerge. You you commented about PML. Any thoughts particularly in terms of BTK inhibition in PML?
1: I'm not aware of any reports of it. I wouldn't predict it would happen because, again, we're modulating immune system as opposed to suppressing or blocking immune cells. So, I would predict, knock knock, that nothing like that is going to happen with this type of, this class of drug. But I'm not aware of any cases of it.
0: I I would, I agree that I don't think that this is going to be certainly not a major issue with this drug in particular. There's no particular reason to think that. I do think that several drugs have proven to us that they may rarely cause PML. And I think that has to do with patient heterogeneity. People are different immunologically. When you you give people the same vaccine, you can get a three-log-fold response in terms of antibodies. So people's immune response propensities are very different. You put a drug on that for most people is perfectly fine. For the rare individual, you may get a problem, and PML certainly may one day emerge. But I think we need to recognize that, not get panicky, but monitor closely and keep that in perspective.
1: Just not quite related to PML, but COVID, during the clinical trial, several patients got COVID and they did okay. So again, that's that concept that it's not suppressing the immune system, just modulating this pro-inflammatory effect. And so our patients who did get COVID had an okay outcome relative to as if they weren't on drug.
0: Great, Tony. So I think we've done quite well with the questions. One particular question on mechanism related to the capacity of BTK to inhibit the NLRP3. This is the inflammasome pathway. When I mentioned the BTK effect on myeloid cells, I talked about the FC gamma receptor. This is only one way in which BTK participates in myeloid cell responses. It sees signals through other receptors like toll-like receptors, and it is involved in the inflammasome, which is a very important inflammatory response in health, but also in some illnesses. And so BTK inhibition in myeloid cells is going to do several things, not just downstream of the FC gamma receptor. I think we will finish the Q&A now. Tony, I want to thank you for a terrific duo of very enjoyable co-presentation and discussion. Thank you and enjoy the day. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YAJ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.